You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC. This is Matt Mattern, uh, your host. And I've got two guests on the program today, Dr. Leslie Field and David Rosenfeld. Uh, Dr. Leslie Field is the founder and chief technology officer of the Arctic Ice Project. She teaches at Stanford University and uh, David Rosenfeld, the Solar Rights Alliance. Uh, Welcome to you both. Thank you very much for having, having me here. Yep, thank you. Well, uh, I'm going to start off with you, uh, Dr. Fields, and uh, tell us a little bit about your organization, the Arctic Ice Project, and uh, what uh, what kind of work are you doing there? Yeah, so uh, this is a nonprofit, uh, actually originally named Ice 911 when I started working on it, and it's really uh, dedicated to trying to intervene in the Arctic melt. It turns out that Arctic ice is extremely important uh, to our planetary uh, climate. And I wanted to find something that was important to do to help provide a habitable planet for my kids <clears throat> is really the motivation. And uh, to, uh, to go ahead and, and try to make an, an intervention with as much testing and you know, rigorous evaluation of whether things worked as possible. So create a, a bit of a new uh, opportunity, new solution in the space and see if it works. And it, it turns out that after a lot of work, <laughs> it looks like it, it could be important. Well, uh, that's great. Uh, can you describe for us what testing you've done to, to prove this concept that you have and uh, how far along are you and how long has it taken you to get to that point? <laughs> yes. Um, it, uh, we like to test among many dimensions. Um, so uh, I'm an engineer of long experience and uh, one of the things I believe in is test, test, test. Uh, so what we have done initially was to test various materials. Would they help to cool water, thereby making it more likely they could preserve ice? Uh, you know, in the Arctic is, is our, our focal point here. And, uh, you know, it started out in tanks of water on my deck at home <laughs> and thermometers, you know, just testing. And then got permissions to go uh, uh, to a lake in the Sierras, which is near where, where we live in California, and uh, test things there on the surface of the lake with the permission of the water district. And, it, you know, we've gotten to test up in Utkagvik, uh which is as far north as you can go in the U.S. It's in Alaska. Uh, it's old name. It's still the airport name is Barrow. And work with the indigenous organization, scientific organization there, to do our field tests up there. So we've done very small-scale field tests everywhere, always with transparency and permissions. But what we found is that we can preserve ice. Um, we've done a lot of testing on a pond in Minnesota, and that's probably, that, that was this last season's, best data that we've seen yet in that we had the most fully instrumented and, and quantified, you know, delay of ice melt pond in Minnesota. Um, so we've been doing a lot of field testing, but it isn't just about that. You know, if you do a small field test, what does that mean? You need climate modeling then that we feed the data into. We work with expert climate modelers to see what effect would that have in the world. Um, we're now working with a Norwegian uh, a very credible group of marine biologists, Sintef Ocean, 
to evaluate more about these are well-known materials what we've chosen as our, our front-runner materials um, but uh, and everything we we have tested and see is that it's safe but to have marine biologists looking at that and make sure that we understand you know what would happen if we were to uh, help preserve sea ice with this um, at the same time we work hard on trying to help establish the ground rules for governance and policy and funding frameworks that could help climate interventional solutions, not just this one, but you know there are many in the world for various aspects of climate that could really help together to do what we're trying to do, which is to make some more time to decarbonize you know, our, our fuels and energy. You know, it's, it's a very complex problem, and what we're trying to do is give some more time by slowing down one of the key drivers. Um, and, and following on that, um, really why the Arctic is really, when Arctic ice melts, we are actually accelerating uh, temperature rise, global temperature rise by losing that reflectivity we used to have in the Arctic. So that's our goal is let's increase our reflectivity. We've done a lot of tests in labs as well. So many dimensions that we work on at once to, to make this thing work. And you asked how far we've gotten. We have some NASA retirees, high-level NASA retirees, who, who volunteer with us. And they assess us at something called TRL3, which means Technology Readiness Level 3, which means we've gotten through proof of concept in just about every area of, that's important. So that that's fascinating. Uh, I guess I would ask you, uh, you know, to to walk us through where where does the next phase of this go, and uh, how can we roll out this uh, this project uh, to the next level? And uh, just kind of have the listeners bear in mind that uh, Dr. Fields uh, has uh, an undergraduate degree from MIT, and then uh, went and has taught. Uh, uh, at Stanford in the electrical engineering department on climate change has 42 patents to her name, as well as 17 patents pending. So she's a, a very, um, very well, you know, credentialed scientist. So um, we're not talking to uh, a guy in the diner talking about uh, climate change here on the program. <laughs> Well, I'll add a little bit to the bio there. I, I can see I should have sent an up-to-date bio. Um, uh, it's up to 60 patents now. Um, I have a PhD, a, a second master's and a PhD from UC Berkeley as well, um, which uh, is in electrical engineering, specializing in sensing and things like that. Um, so yeah, it's uh, I, I've got a long career behind me now. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I've been looking into climate quite a while. I've taught at Stanford now for 11 years. I'll be doing it the 12th year this year on uh, teaching a class on en engineering, entrepreneurship, and climate change. So that's uh, that's also helped uh, connect with a lot of the climate solutions in the world. Um, but yes. So, uh, so what is the... Uh... The work that you've done as far as uh, collaborating with Climaformatics on climate modeling and the supercomputers you're using at NASA with the Earth Exchange, how are how are you using those and and uh, what are the results to date? Yeah, it's that's exciting work. So as as mentioned, you know you can get some information from small scale field tests, but what does it mean to the world? 
these people at Climformatics, they're a, they're a small team. Uh, they, they worked at one of our major national labs, Lawrence Livermore National Lab, and they then decided to get entrepreneurial as well and, and form a, a small but mighty uh, consulting company to do uh, climate modeling. And they are true experts. And so what they're doing is uh, looking at various regions. One of my big wishes in everything I do as far as thinking about any sort of climate intervention is what's the least intervention you can do to get the maximum benefit. And they're helping us see do we have an effect at all? Um, you know, and, and the answer is yes. If, if we model uh, making an intervention like this, uh, we've been focusing on Arctic sea ice for that. Uh, so do we have any, any effect? Yes. What's a key area or two that we could look at and model and see what the effects are? And so uh, they've gone through modeling the Fram Strait, which is an area that has been exporting a lot of ice uh, over the last several decades, uh, so a lot of ice is lost through there. Um, and they've modeled, uh, they did a global model just to detect if there was any effect. Of course, of course there was. And then um, they've, their most recent work is modeling in the Beaufort Gyre. And that's a very useful place to look at because it's the historic nursery for multi-year ice. It's the historic place where you would grow this bright ice, which we have so little of left now. And where and where is that exactly? Okay, so the Beaufort Gyre, uh, it sort of extends between Alaska. So we've been testing at the northernmost point of Alaska uh, onshore, but um, ha has uh, extends from there across to Siberia. Um, it's a it's a big circulation pattern historically. Uh, where ice would reside for like five to seven years on average and keep getting brighter over time. That's, that's the great magic about letting ice persist in an area is it gets brighter over time up to about four years and then it's about as bright as it's going to get. And what's been happening in contrast is that we've melted so much of it that increasingly we have first year ice there, which is thin, not very reflective, and, and not very thick. And it, it disappears then earlier in the melt in the, in the summer. So here is the opportunity to try to rebuild that inventory uh, that's been our historic heat shield in the Beaufort Shire. And it's a very large area and they're, they're modeling treating just a little bit. I'm sorry. Uh, sure. My understanding is that the Arctic is uh, warming four times faster than the rest of the planet or, or even more so. Um, and uh, so obviously the intervention is needed there. Um, we're coming up on a break, but uh, you're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and we're talking to Dr. Leslie Fields, uh, and uh, who's with the Arctic Ice Project. We'll be back in just one minute to talk to her about uh, what she is doing, what her organization is doing to uh, save the Arctic ice. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and uh, we've got we're talking with Dr. Leslie Fields, uh, who is the founder of the Arctic Ice Project. And uh, Dr. Fields again wanted to ask you the question of uh, how we can roll this project out. And what's the next phase of this 
and where does it go from there? Maybe a second phase, third phase, fourth phase, kind of, and maybe budgeting of, of what, did the, what does that look like in terms of cost and uh, tying it into something you had alluded to earlier, which is that if we do this well and do it right, we could maybe extend 15 years of the time that we'd have to decarbonize the, uh, the environment or the economy to, uh, which would be obviously extraordinarily important here. Yeah, um, so one important place to start here is that it's been predicted that the Arctic may become ice-free in the summer by 2030. So that really is kind of our deadline. We could still do some good after that time, but we really have to get things implemented before then if we possibly can. It will help avert some big risks. So what are we doing next? Um, we're building collaborations. I'm, I'm collaborating with folks around the world, actually, to try to uh, get on terrestrial ice as soon as possible, um, uh, maybe through an additional nonprofit to, to help address that. Uh, there are urgent problems in the Himalayas and Greenland, and permissions uh, may be easier to obtain there than in the ocean where you have to uh, negotiate international treaties. So that's, uh, that's one of the, uh, you know, with the International Maritime Organization, getting permissions there is a slow process. We talked with them a few years ago. So if you want to go fast, there may be other ways to get there faster by addressing some of the really urgent glacial ice melt problems in Himalayas and Greenland is, is one of the things I'm concluding these days. Um, Funding to do these things, it depends how large you want to make your tests. It depends how much climate modeling you need. Uh, climate modeling can be a year to two enterprise for uh, some of the major questions we're asking and can take a million dollars or so. Um, field testing, again, depending on the, the size you're doing, you can have tiny tests uh, that don't tell you quite as much but then that can cost something like $100,000 or $200,000. Or if you want to do larger things, you might be able to detect by satellite. And, you know, it could be quite a bit more. Um, and so that's the, that's really the strategy right now is trying to get through all these questions that I'd outlined a little bit of earlier of, does it work? You know, the efficacy, where do you want it to work? How safe is it? All of that. Uh, we think it's about. Can I interject here. here for a yeah, second? Please. Just say, say if you're uh, getting to the point of doing kind of a more massive test, like miles and miles, or tens of miles, or maybe even hundreds of square miles. Uh, how far are we away from doing something like that? Yeah, I'd say that a very important step in that, and one that excites me especially about working on glacial ice is you really need to do co-development with the people who live there. If you're gonna do a big test, it's really imperative to make sure that we're working with the indigenous people who live in, the, who tend to live in Arctic areas. And this is gonna be absolutely essential to get permissions and to make sure that what we're doing works for that area. Not all, not all ice is the same. There's, there's ice that gets darkened by various uh, mechanisms. There's ice that's really a problem that as it melts, you're destroying nearby buildings or, or villages, or you're losing your water supply over time. This is happening in the Himalayas from that melt. And so it's, uh, you know, to get a very large scale 
test, you're really going to need a lot of buy-in from the community, a lot of permission there to make sure, and certainly quite a bit sure. more funding. Yeah. Sure. And uh, I can understand their reticence uh, in that uh, humans don't have the best track record at uh, altering the environment uh, for the good, but uh, also they are the biggest beneficiaries of this if it works. So because they're lands are being despoiled at a, a rapid rate. Maybe you could explain to the audience uh, what the technology is of these hollow grass micro uh, spheres that you're using that uh, could help refreeze the Arctic. Uh, my understanding is they're made of silicon and oxygen, which are plentiful elements in the natural environment. And uh, as such, you don't think they would be a great risk to the environment. Um, What's uh, how is that playing out in your testing? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Um, so the way that we're addressing this is trying to avoid those unintended consequences. Uh, or if there were an unintended consequence, you could reverse it pretty quickly. And that's why we work at the surface. So surface albedo modification is the term. We're, we're just putting a thin layer of a material that, as you said, is hollow glass microspheres. Basically, it looks like and acts like and compositionally is much like uh, floating white sand. Very foot friendly, very round. And these have been used in widespread uh, applications in many, many products that you've seen every day. Uh, so they're very well established. Uh, as said, they're, they've been tested to be safe so far, but we're we're proposing to use them in a different way, and that's why it's important to be working with marine biologists to make sure, you know, of this. And by doing it in small areas first, and then building up, we can be looking to see is there some unexpected consequence that's been happening because of this. The climate modeling helps us too. Are we influencing weather if we get to a large scale here? Are we influencing weather in some way that we'd better know about that's going to advantage somebody, disadvantage someone else? And that's part of why we need some external decision frameworks, too, for what's in the best interests of humanity and what's not. But these, these materials have been choice, chosen because they're pretty small-sized granules, so large, large enough that you're not going to be breathing them or, or hurting you know, anything there, made out of silica, as you said, SiO2, silicon dioxide, which is one of the most abundant materials on the planet. And it doesn't pick up oil-based pollution. It's, it's something we all evolved with just not in quite in this manufactured form, but chemically. So it's not, it, it's not expected to cause a risk, to pose a risk. This sort of materials, you know, all around anywhere and all our rocks and oceans anyway. And so that's, that's part of why we're thinking that this is a, you know, a, as safe as possible type of, type of way to try to restore and, and rebuild and preserve ice. So uh, how would you explain the difference between geoengineering and uh, uh, climate intervention? Yeah, uh, so by its nature, uh, geoengineering has, been, has come to mean things where you're trying to do a very large intervention in, in a very large part of a system. So for instance, proposals to affect the atmosphere. Um, in fact, we've unintentionally geoengineered our atmosphere with all this CO2 emissions. So, you know, that, that was not something anybody had intended to do, but there it is. Um, and some of these proposals, geoengineering proposals, are trying to reverse that in the atmosphere as a whole, sometimes locally. Um, what 
climate interventions tend to be things like restoring kelp forests, uh, building mangroves, you know, trying to do things with resilience, and in our case, doing this uh, modification of a surface, adding a very thin layer, um, you know, uh, hairs widths, several hairs widths, tens of hairs widths thick, uh, to make things more reflective in a given area with this material that, as far as we have seen so far, is benign. Um, but we do need to be working with the marine biologists and confirm that. Yeah. Now, uh, just kind of pivoting a bit, um, if you were, say, the climate czar here and had authority to do whatever was necessary to, to uh, deal with the climate crisis, what would be the top five things you would do in that position or have the world do? Yeah, I've actually participated in some discussions like this with uh, AGU, one of the scientific organizations at NSF, trying to figure out, you know, what are the best uses of the money if if funding comes for this sort of thing. Really critical is research and development money, uh, so that people can, in nonprofits or for profits who are exploring these things, are able to uh, develop these solutions farther, get that evaluation done more quickly. That would be really fantastic. Establishing these governance and policy frameworks and funding frameworks so that this work can get done and so you know what the rules are. Having a framework so that people can evaluate what's in the best interest of humanity, what might not be, what might be too high risk. Um, really, uh, I, I think encouraging this active thinking. People are brilliant around the world. It stuns me how many terrific ideas are out there. And letting people understand this is certainly a concerning situation, right? Our, I mean, we really need to act as though our lives depend on, on dealing with this. Um, but that there's hope. There's so many hopeful solutions in getting them connected with each other, funded, surfaced, so that we can see what's going to work best, what's not. What are the risks? What aren't? What are the risks of doing nothing? Which is certainly a huge risk that we're already seeing the outcomes of. I don't know if that was five things, but those are top of mind, the list. <laughs> uh, those, are, those are great, and I appreciate it, and appreciate the great work that you're doing, uh, Dr. Fields. Uh, pleasure having you on the show. I, I wanted to just uh, have you uh, tell us where people can find your organization on the web and how they could get involved, and uh, if you can give a little pitch for your organization, that'd be great. Okay, yeah, so we're Arctic Ice Project, and that's uh, we've got a website, arcticiceproject.org. Uh, that has a list of other you know handles you could get uh, active on Facebook, LinkedIn, um, you know, just just the usuals, right? Uh, YouTube, Twitter. Um, we need we need uh, more people to hear about this work. We need more funding. Uh, people who want to amplify us on social media, please do. And as said, uh, we're, we're collaborating with more groups right now. Healthy Climate India, uh, Healthy Climate, uh, HCI India, um, is really um, uh, Healthy Climate Initiative India. Sorry to be stumbling on that. Healthy Climate Initiative India is a partner in uh, that I'm working with now to try to start uh, work in the Himalayas. Um, there's a lot of, uh, you know, th there will be more in this space, uh, more collaborations 
uh, that will be important to look at. Um, well, that's great work. One last question before we go, I wanted to ask you is what uh, the Biden administration is uh, doing on, on this front? Are they cooperating, collaborating with you or with other organizations that are doing similar work? And uh, what more could or should they be doing? Hmm. We're trying to find our way in there. Certainly, they, they seem uh, open with some of the appointments they're making to this sort of work, which is really exciting. Um, having Jane Lubchenco in there in the administration as part of it, uh, it who, former head of NOAA, is a really good sign. Um, you know, I, I hear all the time about appointments that are very exciting to me, that these are people who I know to be knowledgeable, who are and, and know to be very science-based, getting increasing visibility in the administration. John Kerry has won awards for, for climate as well. So these are these are very hopeful. As far as the money flowing, it's beginning to come for some solutions through NSF calls, uh, uh, DOE calls for, for innovative solutions. It's uh, Climate intervention is beginning to get on the radar for the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and that would be really pretty key to start to have climate interventions be something that is regarded as fundable. Um, and uh, it looks like that may be fundable by the U.S. government. Um, that That's something that looks like it may be beginning to grow. So we're hopeful for that. Well, that's good news. And uh, I appreciate uh, you again being on the show. And I, I, I like your message of that there are a lot of hopeful solutions out there. Thank you again for your great work, Dr. Fields. Thank you for being on the show. Um, this is Matt Mattern. We're uh, Unite and Heal America, KBC 790, and we will be back in just one minute to talk to David Rosenfeld, who is with the Solar Rights Alliance, and uh, talking to him about solar here in California. Listen to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host, and we're talking to uh, David Rosenfeld, who's with the Solar Rights Alliance. And uh, my understanding is that the PUC is pr proposing reducing the payments to residential rooftop solar owners, and uh, David's organization is is against that. And uh, so, uh, David, uh, thanks for being on the program and tell, tell us a little bit about the work that you've been doing at the Solar Rights Alliance. Yeah, thank you, Matt. So, um, so California, there's 1.3 million solar rooftops. It's pretty amazing. 15 years ago, there wasn't very much rooftop solar at all, um, about 20,000 systems. Thanks to the Million Solar Roofs Initiative that was put in place, thanks to the leadership of Governor Schwarzenegger at the time, uh, there's now 1.3 million systems. What's remarkable is back in the day, if you wanted solar, you had to be either wealthy, technical, or very, very, very committed. And today, you don't have to be any of those three things. And just under half of all new solar is going into working in middle-class neighborhoods, and that's only getting better and better every year. Um, so that's good news because we need it in order to be able to meet all of California's very ambitious climate change goals and clean energy and electrification goals. Um, and we need it because consumers need some way to control their energy bills with rising electricity bills the way they are. We can get into that a little bit more later. The California Public Utilities Commission, however, just made a proposal last month 
that would virtually make solar unaffordable for almost any middle or working class Californian. Uh, the details of the proposal are as follows. Number one, what we call a solar tax, so basically a penalty fee um, on anyone that's putting solar panels on their rooftop. The fee would vary um, depending on how big your system is and also which utility serves you, but it averages about $57 a month, again, just for putting the solar panels on your rooftop. So that's the first component of the proposal. We're calling it a solar tax. The second part of the proposal is to reduce by 80% the credit that solar users receive when they share their extra solar energy with the grid. Now, that's a key component of the way that rooftop solar works. It's called net energy metering or net metering, um, and it's a foundation. You make most of the solar energy you make, you're using right there on the spot, but oftentimes you make extra. And rather than waste that energy, net metering lets you send that energy in real time um, back through the grid, um, literally into the community. The utility sells that energy to your neighbors and then credits you um, for that extra energy as well. So they are proposing to cut that credit by 80%. And then the third part of the proposal that the CPUC made um, is to basically go back on the commitment that the state has made to existing solar users um, to, to let them stay on their current net metering program for 20 years from the date that they initially turned their system on. That's been a long time component of the system and the CPUC is proposing to move that from 20 years to 15 years. And so those are the three parts of it. And um, we estimate as do many others that if anything even close to that goes through, um, it makes solar, it takes us back to basically where we were 15 years ago, where the only people that could afford to go solar would be the very wealthy. And in our view, this would be just a catastrophe from all, from many different angles, from a consumer protection angle, and also from a climate change angle. Well, it's certainly uh, a very challenging situation. And uh, I, I had read a little bit about this and it seemed as though the uh, the utility companies were behind this and they would prefer to kill rooftop solar any way they could because it is the competition to uh, to them. And uh, so my understanding is that they the accounting that they did of this, they said that it was a cost to rate payers for the electricity generated and used by homeowners of their own roof, rooftop solar. And to me, that seems like a, uh, a big red flag when you're saying that's a cost to California. When I say, for instance, if I had rooftop solar, unfortunately I don't, but maybe at some point in time in the future I will, uh, that the solar energy that I generate is a cost to California. I, to me, it seems like it's a net benefit to the California. And, and uh, from a utility standpoint, they, they're calling it a cost, which which raises a big red flag for me when when the utilities are saying something as ridiculous as that. But um, I, I also don't like them moving the goalposts. So if you promise that you'd give 20 years of a certain uh, revenue stream or uh, whatever you want to call it, a subsidy to people who adopted rooftop solar, I just don't think that we should take that away from people because that's just a breach of contract and uh, that's that's just wrong. And and it uh, it erodes the trust that people have in, in our government uh, when you change the rules like that on them uh, midway through the um, their their deal. Now, um, 
the question I have for you is kind of it boils down to what's the governor going to do? And my understanding is that your organization and other organizations came up to Sacramento with 120,000 public comments and thousands of people demonstrating uh, on behalf of the positions you're taking. And the government kind of took us, Governor Newsom took a, stuck, took a step back from uh, his, the C, uh, the Public Utilities Commission's uh, findings and said, hey, we're not going to do what they're going, what they're asking for, but we're going to do something. So uh, do you have any sense of what the governor's going to do that's maybe some compromise uh, position? Yeah, um, well, no, we don't, but I can speculate a little bit about the, the situation. Um, first, just to go back to something that you mentioned um, so yes, over 120,000 members of the public have um, put in a formal public comment on this issue, all, you know, all about growing rooftop solar, not slowing it down or making it less affordable. Um, in addition, we have a coalition. So my organization, the Solar Rights Alliance, is one of over 600 nonprofit organizations, elected officials, community leaders, cities, and schools and businesses that have all basically aligned with the principle of we should keep solar growing, we should not penalize anyone for putting solar panels on their rooftop. Um, and we should certainly not go back on our promises to the people that have already invested in rooftop solar. So it's a big coalition. Newspaper editorial boards have also weighed in um, almost uniformly in our favor, Sacramento Bee, Los Angeles Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and so forth. Um, all of that pressure um, culminated about two and a half weeks ago uh, reporters were pressing the governor just, hey, where do you stand on this? And the governor said, I think changes need to be made. As a result, um, the proposal, which was supposed to be voted on by the CPUC yesterday, uh, got pulled from the agenda. And as far as we know now, there are everything is happening behind the scenes. We don't really know who's talking to who about what. Um, and for us, what we believe is most important here, even if it's a CPUC decision, it is very important to know where does the governor stand? And we don't know where he stands. So what we have been doing is encouraging members of the public to be very, very clear with him about what is an acceptable alternative. Because, and the reason why this is important is because the CPUC's original proposal is so extreme that the governor could literally cut it by two thirds or more and it would still make solar unaffordable for your average working and middle-class person. And so things that we're trying to be very clear with him about is no solar tax. No, we should never penalize people for doing the right thing. And in this case, never penalize people for putting solar panels on their rooftops. So that's number one. Number two is it we're saying- like a no-brainer. One would think, and yet in California, we're discovering things that would be no-brainers to the average person are, don't seem to be no-brainers no to government officials and those who let's, are in charge. Let's just, let's just underline that for the listeners. Uh, this would be a fee that only rooftop solar uh, uh, owners would have to pay and no other utility uh, users would have to pay, correct? Correct. And the fee is basically $8 per kilowatt of your system. So if you, for example, I have a 10 kilowatt system that's 32 panels. 
the average size system is six kilowatts and you pay $8 per kilowatt per month. So the bigger your system, the more you pay. In other words, the more money that you invest with your own dollars to generate clean local electricity that you can then also share with your community so that we can increase the amount of clean energy on the grid and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, the more money you're going to then have to pay the utility. Wonder if the utilities had anything to do with uh, coming up with this. Uh, I wonder, know. huh? Like you know, yeah, one would think. here's our competition. Let's crush <laughs> them uh, right now. Uh, that's right. It's that's, collecting. Uh, it's the classic example of collecting rents, right? Like, oh, you figured out a way not to pay me. We're going to make you pay anyway, and we're going to lobby and use our influence with the government to make you do that. I mean, it's just classic cronyism, corruption, the whole thing. Wasn't this kind of uh, one of those backroom deals of uh, a century ago where the C, uh, the Public Utilities Commission is going to make some uh, some ruling with uh, without a chance of us citizens being involved? Uh, isn't that kind of a, a bit of a dirty deal? Uh, are they going to have to then put that new proposal up for public comment? Yes, they have a public process. I will just say, Mike, I mean, I organize the public. This is what we do. Um, their process is terrible, just absolutely terrible. It's it's opaque. Their website stinks, um, you know. But nonetheless, there is a process and there is a time, and that's what we're utilizing right now. I mean, that's why those 120,000 comments actually do go into the official public record and have to be weighed as part of all the other things that they're doing. But honestly, it's just all politics, and the the way the decision is going to get made is the governor is going to feel like you know, is it, do I have more to gain by sticking with my campaign promises and listening to the people and following through on the things I said I, I stood for? Or do I have more to gain with taking the utility side? And so that's what it's going to come down to. Well, uh, you're listening to KBC 790. This is Matt Mattern, your host of Unite and Heal America. We've got David Rosenfeld on the program, who's with the Solar Rights Alliance. And uh, we'll be back in just one minute to talk to David about the battles going on in California on uh, regarding solar. You're listening to Unite and Heal America on KBC 790. This is Matt Matter, your host, and I've got David Rosenfeld uh, with us today with the Solar Rights Alliance. And uh, David, is it reasonable to be giving a subsidy to a rooftop solar homeowner who owns a million dollar home or a multi-million dollar home or a person who has an income of $200,000 a year or more? Uh, can't they afford the co- cost of a maybe slightly higher electric bill? Isn't that the argument on the other side of this equation? So first off, to understand net metering is not a subsidy. So all it is is a billing arrangement. It's just like if you grow your own vegetables and you bring it to a market to sell it. People are investing of all different income levels um, to put a power plant on the rooftop that makes solar energy. They use that solar energy um, right there on the spot to power the refrigerator or what have you. They also make extra solar energy. Rather than giving it to waste, it goes out to the wires. The utility sells that energy to your neighbors um, and then credits you for the same amount that they sell it to your neighbors, which makes sense because the utility didn't spend any money. Um, making that energy. And they spend almost no money to basically transport it locally. And you already pay for that local transportation anyway, through all the little non-bypassable charges. So it's a common sense transaction and it makes perfect sense. And it's a key way with which people will make that investment. If we start kind of going, oh, well, yes for you and no for you, 
it just undermines the whole idea of like, why, you know, why would you go ahead and do it anyway? So there's no reason to bifurcate. Um, the thing that we should be focused on is how do we make solar grow even more among middle and working class people precisely where it is growing the fastest? So we shouldn't get distracted by the millionaires. They're becoming increasingly the minority of folks who are adopting solar, and we should be focusing on making it even more affordable for working and middle-class people. Well, it kind of makes sense that the top 1% is still only 1%. So there's only so many of them that can uh, put solar on their homes. So uh, of course, in LA, we have plenty of people who own 10 homes. So uh, <laughs> now I agree that we should be encouraging homeowners to install rooftop solar. The question is, what's the right amount of subsidy and who it should be go going to? And Maybe you can address that in terms of uh, the, uh, are there ways to put even more money into the hands of lower income folks to encourage them to adopt it even faster? Yeah, there are. And I, this is what I think the question really should revolve around. So first off, let's just leave net metering alone. Like we need to get so much clean energy onto the grid in order to be able to reach California's decarbonization goals. The state itself says we have to three X, triple, the amount of wind and solar, both large scale from solar and wind farms and rooftop solar. And at the same time, we're trying to get all these people to switch to electric cars and electric appliances. So we need a lot, a lot, a lot of clean energy. And we're going to need to get it as fast as we can. So it's good. We're going to need a lot of solar farms and wind farms. We have a lot of rooftops that are not being used. We have this very efficient way where people can invest in putting solar energy on their roof, sell that extra energy back to the grid. It's really efficient to do it that way because it means we don't have to build as many solar farms, as many wind farms. We don't have to build as many long distance transmission lines and distribution lines to do that. So it makes the whole system cheaper. It makes it more resilient. It gives consumers a stake in the whole clean energy transition. Um, and we'll just be able to get to that 100% more quickly. So that's the first thing. Then. For people for whom even the market price, no matter how low it goes, might not be able to afford it, then we should be, that's where we should be directing subsidies to, um, to be able to buy down that price, incentivize lower income homeowners um, to, to get it, and then also renters. And there's a numerous ways with which we can be incentivizing property owners, especially in places where um, people are a little bit below the, the median income to be getting the rooftop solar there and accruing those benefits to all the renters in the building. We've been proposing all of these policies actually for several years to both the legislature and the CPUC. And it's notable that their proposal doesn't include any of them. Um, and so, you know, they talk a good game on equity, but when they actually get real proposals in front of them that would help accelerate the already equitable expansion of rooftop solar, they instead go with what they went with. Yeah, I mean, that that's common sense is that we should keep in place the measures that we have currently and expand upon them with new measures, because clearly uh, the amount of money that we're spending on the current measures are not really that substantial vis-a-vis -vis the cost uh, to the entire uh, state and the world at large of, of having an environmental disaster. So it seems like a pretty efficient way to invest in a good solution. I guess the question is, how much are we investing as a state through the current programs that we have to roll out rooftop solar, uh, say, in a, in a given year? Not very much, because again, net metering, which is what we're talking about, right? The credit that solar users get for sharing their extra energy back to the grid. 
it's 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 a net benefit, as you said, unlike what the utilities and the CPUC claims, it's a net benefit to the state. And the reason why is because, yes, even though the utility has to pay you for that extra energy, um, they're still selling it to your neighbor for that exact same cost, an average of 25 cents a kilowatt hour. You pay for the poles and wires through a minimum bill and non-bypassable charges and that kind of thing. And every single solar user reduces their use of long-distance power lines. And long-distance power lines are actually the primary cost driver of electricity in this state. That's unbeknownst to most people. And rooftop solar also users- create, Also create a greater risk of fire, right? Because uh, those, those are the lines that have caused the, the fires, right? And our and in addition, what you said is right. And it also, because we're reliant on them, when they go down, because now the utilities are trying to reduce the wildfire risk, then we have all these rolling blackouts that sometimes extend for days at a time. We need them and we're going to keep needing them, but they're very, very, very expensive. And incidentally, although not coincidentally, um, the way that's the way the utilities make their profits. The deal that they have with the state as a regulated monopoly is for every dollar that they spend building and maintaining long distance power lines, they get a guaranteed seven to 10% profit on top of that, that they can collect from ratepayers. Rooftop solar. No, no, no wonder why they want to crush the potential of microgrids at the neighborhood level, because this is where they make their money. This so. is where they make their money. And rooftop solar users reduce the wear and tear on that infrastructure. And because there is 1.3 million systems, these savings are actually quite significant. In, in 2018 alone, the state canceled 2.6 billion dollars worth of long distance power line projects that were going to get charged to ratepayers but didn't and they attributed that to both rooftop solar and energy efficiency and that's not a one time thing it just continues to happen in a bigger and bigger number well we've only had a little bit of time to uh to wrap this up and what's the average cost of uh, putting solar up on a on a home these days you know it depends on the size but you know it's like between let's say it's between like $12,000 and $20,000 to put solar up on your rooftop. And, um, you know, you get a federal tax, like a, there's no subsidy anymore in the state. There is a federal tax credit that you can get um, and, you know, for that. And then obviously then there's, you know, net metering. Um, so that's the, the upfront cost. And for people who want a battery, then, you know, you're looking at in between like five and $15,000, depending on the size of the battery, if you want to get that as well. So uh, tell people how they can get involved and uh, you know, work with your organizations, uh, your organization, and uh, also lobby the uh, Public Utilities Commissioner and the governor to, uh, to have them say, hey, this is a bad idea. Don't change the current policies we have and just add to them with uh, better policies and, and uh, to help roll out solar even faster. Yeah, so they can go to my organization's website. We are the Solar Rights Alliance. That's solar rights, one word, solarrights.org. And we're the nonprofit association of California solar users. And we believe everybody has the right to make energy from the sun. Well, uh, I do too. And uh, everybody, uh, please contact uh, your representatives and the Public Utilities Commission to to make, uh, make sure that our voices are heard and, and we help uh, roll solar out even faster than uh, ever before. Uh, David, uh, thanks for being on the program. It's a pleasure having you and Dr. Leslie Field uh, from the Arctic Ice Project. 
And uh, it was great, great having you both and doing amazing work out there. So uh, keep up the great work and we'll look forward to checking back with uh, both of you in, in the months to come to see how things are working. All right, thank you.